Um, starting in verse 1. Now Moses uh, was pasturing the flocks of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in the, a blazing fire from the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. So Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight, why the bush is not burned up. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then the Lord said, do not come here. Remove your sandals from your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And so then the Lord tells him that he has chosen Moses to go into Egypt and to free God's people from slavery. And Moses, uh, of course, as you know the story, does not jump at the, at the chance, but rather is quite hesitant. And even says in verse 13, Then Moses said to God, Behold, I am going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they will say to me, What is his name? Uh, what shall I say to them? Okay, so they're living at a time where everyone worships all these different gods. They're in Egypt where, God, where different gods are worshipped uh, quite regularly. I might add to this, um, it's not just imaginary gods that they are worshipping. Right? Ephesians chapter 6 is quite clear that we are not fighting against flesh and blood, but, it, but against entire principalities and powers Real powers. Okay, so you have demonic activity where real things are happening. Um, in the time of the Old Testament, when you have these priests of Baal or Baal or whatever you want to call it, uh, dancing around, they're really expecting something because they've seen things. Right? The powers, the demonic powers are not just imaginary. So you have these different kinds of worshiping going on. People worshiping things that are made up. People worshiping demonic powers, you got all kinds of things going on, so who is this God that's going to come and free them? They want to know his name. Okay, And so God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God furthermore said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, He has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial name to all generations. So this name. Why is Moses, do you think, asking, aside from, like, there's lots of different gods out there, what's the name, what do you think the purpose of this asking of, what is your name? Didn't he say he was the god of Isaac, Abraham? Why, why do they need a name, do you think? 
This is going to be your first blank, by the way, if you're taking notes. Give those people the name. <laughs> yeah, they're going, to, they're going to want to know it. Now, there's a cultural thing going on here. Something that Americans may have lost. Um, let me see. Chuck, what does Charles mean? Wow, you do that right away. Man of God. All right, good. Now, isn't it interesting to know what your name means? I mean, for Americans, we find it kind of interesting. It's like a, it's like a thing of interest. Hey, what does your name mean? I don't know. Let me go look it up. Uh, Google it. Um, and we just, we just kind of... But we do pick names oftentimes, uh, maybe because they sound cool. Uh, we have, um, at least from my generation, we have people picking names because they sound cool. Um, but why does it mean something? Why, Chuck, why do you know what your name means? Uh, my parents told me. <laughs> okay. And what's the significance of your name meaning man of God? I mean, to you. Uh, to me, it's something I've got to live up to. Yeah. In the Hebrew tradition, you have a strong emphasis on your name meaning something that you will have to live up to and carry on in your life. It describes a nature, right? Um, does anyone else know the na- what your name means? Googling it right now. <laughs> <laughs> Did you say you know what your name means? It means bitter. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah, Mara. My name is Mary, and it comes from... From Mara, so okay. That's not nice. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's better than me. My my dad lied to me, um, and I think he he meant it. It was supposed to be a good lie, because um, he. Well, I would always ask him, "What does my name mean?" Because I never heard of it. No one ever has it. I think there's a city in Washington called Renton, but other than that, uh, they basically found it in a baby book. What's yours? Gustas is. Nice. All right. Well, my dad said that Renton meant Tower of Strength. And I think he, he wanted me to think that there's some kind of meaning to it. Uh, I think it, it ended up, I think it means uh, Hunter of Deer. So, which I have never done. Uh, mainly because if deer tasted like cows, then yeah, I'd hunt them all day long. Kill as many as I could. And eat them because steak is amazing. But uh, they don't, so I don't. I could be hunter of cow. I mean, it'd be an easy kill, but man, delicious. Okay, so what he's looking for there Moses asked God's name so that God would reveal his nature to his people. Now, some of you might be thinking to yourself, self, what does I am mean? That almost doesn't help at all. But what's interesting is that this is the real nature of God that he's revealing to Moses to proclaim to Israel. Tell them that the I Am sent you. And this is supposed to mean something about his nature. So what we find is that God's proper name, that he goes by many names, but his proper name, the name that he wishes to be known to Israel's as his 
as his proper uh, identity is I am. Um, in Hebrew, it's Yahweh. Um, and we only know that because um, some people called Masoretes help us know what those vowels look like. So we have some kind of pronunciation there. Uh, so as we're going to look at this, we want to look at how this has any kind of understanding. So what we have in verse 14, I want you to look at that. God said to Moses, I am who I am. Um, there's a few things that that's going to reveal to us. If you look in the Hebrew, what it's really saying is... Um, the first I am really has a tendency because of the, of the who part. The who part actually has a sense in which it could be a colon. So what God really is saying, I am, I am the Lord. Does that make sense? So he's kind of using the first I am as, what I, if I'm going to say what my name is, I am, I am. Makes sense. Okay. Now, what do you what do you make of that? What is that? I mean, if you were to hear that, what's your name? My name is I am. That's what I am. How do you make sense of that? What do you think? It's like the original identity. Okay. Yeah. I mean, isn't it true that most names uh, kind of have a reliance on some kind of concept? Right? Chuck, what did you say your name was? Man of God. Man of God. Okay. So Chuck's identity is linked to God, correct? He's a man of God. Okay. Um, what was, when we, uh, Daniel... Wasn't it, uh, I forgot what my own son's name meant. We had this big thing. Uh, because Quinn meant counselor. So there was this idea of, he is, um, what was it? Oh, I probably shouldn't have brought it up. But no, you Throw a blank. <laughs> yeah. But every name, <laughs> oh, that wasn't done. But every name is linked to something else outside of itself. Does that make sense? Whatever name you have, there is some kind of identity you are taking on that links you to something outside yourself. God is judge. That's what it was, yeah. God is judge. God is my judge. Okay, so even the name Daniel, linking its, itself, linking the person who has that name back to God as judge of that person. So what do you do if you have no uh, dependence? Where there's nothing that you depend on. There's nothing outside yourself by which to link yourself to. Because that's what names do. Names say, this person is linked to this. But if there's nothing out there that you are linked to because you are the sovereign ultimate thing, what do you call yourself? You call yourself the I am. So your first blank there, God's proper name reveals that his most natural existence is when God is self-existent. 
God is self-existent. Now this will have some huge ramifications to your, well, how he relates to you. Self-existent, what is, can you imagine something like that? Um, does anyone have a story of the first time you realized you were on your own? See, like, today we live in a time where people leave from home to college, and college really isn't real. It's kind of like a more advanced high school, right, where you have the same drama as high school, but now, you know, mom and dad aren't around, you have a dorm. But you have an institution that's taking care of you. I kind of do. It's not anything earth shattering, but I remember exactly where I was. It was in it was my super senior year of college, and I was in an apartment, and I was sitting in my kitchen looking at groceries that I had just bought. And it hit me that my mother had always made the atmosphere of our house, that I had everything, all of the stuff I needed. I had the pots and pans and the, you know, the food. But I didn't have the atmosphere, that warmth, that home, that love that my mother created to make a, a real home. And all of a sudden it hit me. For the rest of my life, I'm responsible for making the atmosphere of the home that I'm in. And I can never go back to that again. I'm mean, going to go home for Christmas, but it's essentially up to me now to create yeah. That's good. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah, that's, that's going to lead to the next. That's very good. Well, I mean, and, and you know that even when you go home, you're now a visitor, right? You're not a part of it the way you were a part of it before. You really feel independent. Uh, like, maybe not even in a good way. Maybe for some of you, it was the first time you received a bill. <laughs> for an electricity bill. Uh, for some of you men, you realize that your job, the money your job provides, stretches only so far, and the weight of that uh, bears down on you. Um, and so it's hard for us to understand self-existence because we live our lives uh, relying on things. Um, and the next part is something that goes along with what Sarah's talking about. God is his own environment. A lot of times, and this is kind of, and there's a reason why we're going through this, uh, this ethereal stuff. But it's kind of important to get to the more personal stuff. You have to understand, before creation, before God created, God did not sit in this big bubble of space. Right? Because space would be an environment. And that would be created. So what did God exist in before creation? He was the environment. He was his own world. So he wasn't sitting in this big open space of just Sitting there, he was all there was. Now, you can't probably imagine what it's like for a God to exist without anything else existing outside of himself. But that's the kind of God we're talking about. Right? We're not talking about a God 
who was sitting in this big open environment and within that environment had these longings for people and so then he created more environment for people to live in so that he could feel that uh, happy. I'm picturing in my brain Aslan with nothingness destroying things in existence. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of space though, I guess. Yeah, and, and that's, you know, and isn't that the limits of trying to imagine this thing, right? C.S. Lewis did his best. Um, but the limits of our brain, where we can't imagine something that exists and is its own source of existence and doesn't even need environment because he is his own. doesn't need this open space of blackness because that's created too. And so we have a God who is self-existent. He is his own environment. He doesn't create an environment to live in. He is his environment. So we have a God that has no, and this is the next couple blanks, has no beginning and no end. So now you're thinking of a God who did not even begin. So if you don't have a beginning... We certainly can't imagine that. This is where the students' minds start to bend when I talk to them about the impossibility of creation. Um, people tend to think that uh, believing in creationism is crazy, but evolution seems to make sense. So I tell them, well, you're just believing in a different kind of beginning, another kind of beginning that's impossible. It's all impossible. You need a God who, you need something that didn't begin to begin everything else. If you want to hold on to evolution, you have to believe in this big leap of faith that there is some kind of material that never began so that material could begin, which is an impossibility. So people just kind of move by it with the God particle. Uh, some people tried to use M theory, where you're like, well, it's a different dimension that started our dimension. If you want to play that game, well, where'd that dimension come from? Right? Or you could go with the Richard Dawkins, or uh, is it Richard Dawkins? Yeah. The Richard Dawkins route, where aliens came and placed some uh, protein on our planet so we can have evolution. That was very nice of them. Spring a little protein. <laughs> I know it's, I'm making it sound crazy. Uh, but I don't know how else to make it sound. So, um, I mean, you always take these you have some kind of God that's doing something. <laughs> Whether it's the God of the dimensions or the God that sprinkled, you know, proteins and water so that we could have life. Whatever it is, um, there's an impossibility that we run into. And if you have a God who is the I am, you're talking about a God that is the self-existent, his own environment, without beginning. And this is the big part God is fully, and this is the last blank there, enthralled in his threeness. Try to use a word that helped you understand. He's enthralled in his threeness. The persons of the Trinity are ever loving each other, ever fulfilled with each other. 
to the point where there is no need of anything else. The love that they have for each other is so full and so complete and so um, immense that there is no eternity long enough for them to celebrate and love each other. So what question does that bring to your mind? You have perfect glory amongst the Trinity. You have perfect praise and celebration, perfect working, perfect uh, fullness. And if I can just keep using that word, they're enthralled. So why you? Uh, Oftentimes, my unsaved students would keep bringing up the idea of free will and how could a God, you know, do this and do that. There's so much suffering. And, you know, how could God make a hell and put people in it and then choose other people to go to heaven? What kind of a God is it? And they're asking all the wrong questions because typically they're kids that um, aren't thinking deep enough. Those aren't the right questions. Those all, those questions come from the one question that really is boggling. Why are you even here? If you have a God who is truly independent, the kind of independence who when you ask his name, the only thing that really makes sense for him to say is, I am, describes me. And the I am who needs no creation, who needs nothing, who finds full pleasure and glory within himself, is interested in the slaves of of Egypt that they get out of there. That's amazing. Why would he care about that? Why did he create this environment, this world, where human beings who are so fully sinful uh, that... Even when he redeems them, the worship is not nearly as perfect, not nearly as full, not nearly as um, glorious as he gets within his own, within himself. In fact, the only way to get true worship and true glory out of you, he must be in you. So what are you here for? What's the point? So, um, if, I can, if I can reiterate that even more, since the fall, in your notes there, we are copies of our Father. Who's our Father since the fall? Isaiah 14, 14. Isaiah 14, 14 is talking about a particular person named Lucifer who had this ambition. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. Um, In Genesis 3, 1 through 7, we find the fall itself. 
And what's the temptation? Let's look at Genesis 3. What does Lucifer want Eve to believe about herself? So we know this. Lucifer wants to make himself like the Most High. And in Genesis 3, this is his, this is his temptation to Eve. Now, when the, now the serpent was, the, was more crafty than any other beast in the field which the Lord had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden. The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat of it or touch it or you will die. And the serpent said to the woman, You shall not... You, You surely will not die, for God knows in the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. From the fall, uh, we are copies of our father, the devil, right? And long to be autonomous. What is the great sin of the human race? What causes pride that causes every sin we commit? We want the autonomy of our God. Right? We want that independence. We want to be self-existent. We want this. We want to be like God. And so I want to show you in Exodus 3... If we go back to Exodus 3, I want you to look at that burning bush. <laughs> I want you to be amazed at the same thing that uh, the writer of Exodus was amazed by. Now Moses was pasturing the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law. Sitting around, pasturing the flock... And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in the blazing fire from, from, midst, from the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. Well, that's kind of interesting. Bush is on fire. Uh, it doesn't take long for a bush to burn, especially in the desert, right? Uh, we've all, we're in the south now, we can burn things in our backyard, right? I mean, back in the north, you can't burn anything. Other people call the police and fire trucks and all that. But here, you can burn stuff in your backyard. And for the most part, people leave you alone. And if you've ever done that, uh, you notice that uh, when you put brush on the, on the fire, it burns fast. But this was not consumed. You think, oh, well, this is, that's kind of interesting. But it keeps bringing it up. And Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight, why the bush is not burned up. So now Moses is kind of interested in it. When the Lord saw that he had turned, uh, turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said to her, here I am. Then he said, do not come near, remove your sandals from your feet, for the place in which you are standing is holy ground. And so he's standing on this holy ground, with a bush, the Bible keeps bringing up, isn't consumed. What do you make of that? I mean, we live in a world, 
right? Where we watch lots of movies where that's not that interesting of an effect to have. I mean, you could have a bush and then they can superimpose CGI on it uh, of fire, right? And, and the fire will look like it's going. And so we get the concept that, you know, but why is that a big deal theologically? If we were to think theologically, does this say anything about God? Do you think? He can't be destroyed. Okay. Well, which part do you think is God, the fire or the bush? Okay, the fire. So, on your first couple blanks, though, the bush was earthly, but the fire is divine. Okay? The bush is earthly, but the fire is divine. He wasn't amazed that there was a bush there. He was amazed there's fire. And what's fascinating is the fire is not destroying the bush. How does fire work? It consumes. It consumes. In fact, people even refer to the things that fire relies on as fuel. Putting fuel to the fire so that the fire can stay going. In fact, we even talk about keeping the fire alive. If you guys go uh, to a bonfire, you have to keep feeding it. It's dependent on that fuel, right? This is a fire that's not dependent on anything. It does not hurt the bush. But it dwells with the bush. Your next blank there is the fire dwelt with the bush. There was this dwelling. John 1.14. We see this, this being carried out by Christ. This dwelling with the earthly. The divine and the earthly dwelling together. How is it possible? Here we have, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory the glory of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth, that dwelt there. Um, maybe you've heard this before, but that dwelt there is that Greek word for tabernacle. He set up his tents with us. The holy tabernacle. He's tabernacling with us. Something divine and perfect without any need. The great I am is dwelling with the earthly people. So what we find in your next blanks there, the fire was absolutely real and at the same time absolutely independent. The fire had to be real fire, right? If it wasn't real fire, then there's nothing exciting about it. It just looks like there's this bright light or this vision of fire on the bush. That maybe Moses thought, I see a vision of fire coming from the bush, but I know the fire is not really there, it's just a vision. But he didn't say it's a vision, he said it was fire. When Christ took on flesh, that flesh was real, and he dwelt, he tabernacled with his people. There is this holy, independent God, who is the great I Am, who was really with his people in a real way. So God's glory filled the ordinary. 
right? That's your next blank there. You can see the glory of God in that fire that's dwelling inside that bush. What we see here is a picture of the covenant love of the I Am. Picture of the covenant love of the I Am who chose to tabernacle in his people. So I want you to get the full picture here. You have our God, who is the great I Am, who exists fully in himself, is fully enthralled in himself, is not a God who needs love. He is not a God who is, oh, I feel lonely and I need the love of some kind of creation, so I must create. We have a God who is so independent, so fulfilled in himself, so glorious within what he does in himself, the work of his own glory that he has within himself. He is not bored. He does not need. He does not have anything he lacks, and yet he creates us. It is not mysterious as to why God chose some uh, for heaven and some for hell and why God made these choices that seem so unfair to our, our angsty philosophy of earth. The mystery is that a God who needed nothing loved us even before he created us. And it doesn't make sense. It is a glorious, how do I put it? This covenant act of love is a glorious act that we can't understand. We assume that we are worthy of love and we assume that we are glorious things. And what we don't assume is that God, who is the independent I am, created what he didn't need. Loved what he didn't have to love. Would be just in evaporating us and just continuing on with his own glory. And yet covenanted with his people in a personal, loving way is profound to us because we stand worthless without his glory dwelling in us through his Son. Otherwise, we're just a dried-up bush. And that is some of the amazing things we know about our God that makes his relationship to us so different. This is why when we see churches that look at God as the prom queen God that rubs his hands together, worried that no one's going to love him, should offend us. Because they're making him a dependent, sad, pathetic God who longs for our love and just doesn't understand why we don't love him back. He is a great God who is fully independent and when he wants us to love him, he covenants with us and draws us to him way 
I can put it this way, a manly God would. Um, we are out of time. I wish I had more time for questions on this one because this is such a, this is so out of our thinking uh, when we think about God. But um, again, uh, come to me if you have some questions and we can uh, talk about it afterwards. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you grateful for who you are. You are a God that is fully the I am, and which has no need, but loves us anyway. Lord, we thank you for who you are and what you mean to us. We pray for good worship today. We pray for your servant, Andrew, as he comes before us with your word, that our hearts will be Uh, bowed before your word and that your spirit will work deeply within us. Lord, we ask these things in your son's name. Amen.